So I said, we've got to put it on an engine dyno and then find out what the hell's going on. And we found it straight away. When the engine was at like 20% throttle, this thing was detonating its head off. And that's what it was because Alistair McRae was like full throttle everywhere, even road sections and whatever. <laughs> we never had that problem. And, of course, Higgins was trying to be gentle, gentle, you know, road sections. The damage <laughs> was happening. And then soon as you get on the stage, bang, that would be the sign-off of the piston. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by David Rowe from EPS Motorsport in the UK. I first met David around about five years ago when I was attending the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb, and at that point, Dave was competing with his absolutely immaculate Audi Group B rally car replica. Uh, This was a replica in the sense that it looked like the original, but the attention to detail, the modernisation was at another level and this attention to detail really goes through everything that David does. In this episode we dive deep into David's history, how he got involved in cars, his time spent learning his trade and honing his skills at Motec both in Australia and then at Motec in Europe. A particular interest in this episode is some of the projects that David finds himself involved in. Given that he's built himself an enviable reputation throughout Europe, he finds himself involved in some pretty interesting projects, modernising the electronics and taking over the tuning duties on the dyno. I'm talking here projects such as a Sauber Mercedes 96 Group C race car where he retrofitted the entire wiring harness and modernised the electronics with a Motec ECU. Uh, despite these cars being worth upwards of about two, two and a half million pounds, these are still raced hard and power is still important. So don't think this is some detuned dyno queen. It gets driven hard. On top of this, there's not too many people we get to talk to who've had the opportunity to tune not one, but actually several Formula One engines. We dive into that as well. Lastly, for those who are interested in the business side of the automotive and specifically the tuning industry, uh, we get to pick David's brain on that side of things as well. So there's a huge amount of information covering a really wide range of ground here. Before we do get into our interview with David though, for those who are fresh to the Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune factory and aftermarket engine management systems, build reliable race and performance street engines, build your own wiring harnesses. We also cover topics including race driver education, car setup and data analysis just to name a few. You can find a complete list of all of our courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses relevant to today's topic considering we are focusing fairly squarely on the tuning side of things is a few of our tuning courses. We'll start here with our EFI Tuning Fundamentals course. As its name suggests, this covers the fundamentals of EFI tuning. You'll learn how the engine works, how the ECU works, how it calculates the required fuel, what we're trying to do when we're delivering fuel, and as well what happens with the ignition event, how that affects the way the engine performs. 
If you want to go a little bit deeper, we also have our understanding air-fuel ratio. Of course, probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in the world of EFI tuning. You'll learn what the air-fuel ratio actually is, why we need a specific amount of fuel, how the air-fuel ratio affects the engine operation. We'll give you some safe starting air-fuel ratios for a range of different engines and then most importantly, teach you how to test and find the ultimate air-fuel ratio for your particular engine. Then we dive into our practical standalone ECU tuning course. As its name would suggest, this will teach you how to tune an aftermarket standalone ECU. Doesn't matter the brand, all of the lessons 100% applicable. We know that when it comes to tuning your first ECU, it can be a bit daunting when you're faced with no start file, no base map. And interestingly, we'll talk about the irrelevance of base maps and start files in this chat with David as well, but I digress. Out, we teach you how to build all of that yourself and we've broken the entire tuning process down into the HPA 10 step process. By doing this, each of those steps, relatively easy and quick to complete in no time you've got a properly tuned engine delivering great power talk and most importantly great reliability. This course also includes a library of worked examples where you can watch that 10 step process being applied from start to finish on a real tuning job. We vary the type of engine as well as the ECU we are using to give you a broad range of experience. As a podcast listener, you can also use the coupon code PODCAST75. That will get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. And we'll put a link to all of that in the description. All right, enough of our introduction. Let's get into our chat now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks for joining us today. And as we usually do, I just wanted to get started by learning a little bit about your background and specifically how you got involved in the automotive scene right at the get-go. Yeah, my name is David Rowe. I'm originally from Melbourne, Australia. And basically, I started training as a uh, motor mechanic when I left school. So, you know, that was a great stepping stone for the industry I'm in today, really, which um, you can't believe how... You know, you go back on the early days of training of um, being a motor mechanic um, and apply that to your current job now. So we sort of done that when I left school. And then um, after that, I also got a job at a um, company which done some fabrication for rally cars and um, some race cars. So we dabbled in a bit of fabrication of rally cars and race cars for a couple of years, which was great knowledge as well. You know, we got to learn to weld and you know, do all sorts of things. We were fitting old um, Wolf 2D ignition-only computers back then, um, all sorts of stuff, you know. So it was amazing what we sort of learned there as well. And then um, after that, we got a um, job at Motec in um, Melbourne at the head office. So they applied for a, a technician, and um, that was basically in sort of the workshop. And we were doing everything from like assembling throttle bodies to uh, doing customer support and manufacturing wiring harnesses. And so it was a really good stepping stone for what I wanted to do for the future, really. So I couldn't have asked for some better training, really. So Just coming back a, a step, there's a lot of obviously mechanics out there all around the world who, who train to become a mechanic and, and by all accounts probably mm. very, very good at what they do, uh, but maybe don't have that passion 
for actual motorsport. Maybe they're not modifying their own cars, etc. Yeah, you know, was was there a little bit more to to your sort of drive in the automotive industry other than just spinning spanners to to make a dollar? Yeah, correct. I mean, as a sideline, we've um, my father was always heavily involved in um, sort of motor racing and sort of, you know, playing around with cars and tinkering and stuff like that. And and that's where our passion and love affair come with it as well. So, you know, from the age of 15, we, we were racing go-karts. And then from like right up to like 19, we sort of, then we got into um, circuit racing. Um, I was also co-driving for a friend with his rally car. So, you know, one weekend we'll be circuit racing, next weekend I'll be co-driving. And then um, during the weekdays I'd be sort of helping out prepping of rally cars and, you know, race cars. And and also, you know, my brother was a massive petrol head as well and all my mates were. So it was kind of it was kind of just something he did really. I just, you know, I, I used to love it. I used to you know, spend you'd spend all your money on car parts, and to be fair, not a lot's really changed. To be honest, <laughs> so <laughs> just the car parts become a bit more expensive. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, and apparently, if you sell them, you know, at some stage of your life, it, that's meant to help as well. But I haven't mastered that talent. All right, let's sort of come back to the the stepping stone up to 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 Motec. I mean, most of the listeners of this podcast would have heard of of the brand. Uh, one of Australia's premier uh, ECU manufacturers. So prior to moving to Motec, you'd sort of said you you dabbled in some Wolf 2D ignition ECU. So for for those who haven't heard that brand, I don't don't hear it a lot. I've I've dealt with it a couple of times over my career, but Wolf is another Australian brand. I don't really know why Australia kind of ended up being this melting pot for ECU manufacturers. A bit of a tangent, but there's a huge number of aftermarket ECU manufacturers in Australia, probably per capita, I would guess, higher than anywhere else in the world. I mean, on that note, is there something in the water over there? Is it is it the the crocodiles? I don't know. What why why is Australia kind of that hotbed for ECUs? I think it's much the same as your country, really, Andre. It's like we tend to like not to buy most things we try to make it ourselves half the time don't we so you know as far as trying to buy an ecu or whatever i'm sure there was like well you know i'm sure Baza or whatever can make a make an ecu for us and can kind of evolve it from there and 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 that's kind of how there were so many ecu manufacturers in australia wasn't there you know there was like the otronics there was there was wolf there was haltech you know there's there's numbers of ECUs. Count. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. So to, to come bring us back on track after that little uh, tangent there, yeah, you, you said you you dealt with the the Wolf 2D uh, ignition only ECU. So obviously, you're sort of building maybe a, a very small amount of experience at that point. How, how pivotal or important was that to to getting the job at Motec? Is there sort of a a deep seated interest at this point in getting more involved in the ECU tuning side of things, or are you still more involved uh, or interested in the the mechanical and fabrication side of automotive industry? To be honest, it was quite a, a pivotal point, really, because when you like tune an engine or you you know you, you make something 
you know, you adapt electronics to a vehicle and, and it runs for the first time. And it, it's so rewarding and enjoyable, isn't it? You know, you, it's kind of instantaneous, the, the, the feeling you get from, you know, the results that you achieve, isn't it? And yeah, absolutely. And for me, it's like, it's like another stepping stone, isn't it? You know, because when you go into a career in or any career, isn't it? You always want to be intellectually stimulated. And and I kind of figured that like this industry was like endless, and you know that it was kind of at its probably infancy, really, wasn't it? What what year are we talking about with your move to Motech, just so we can get a bit of a sense? It's probably like ninety five, ninety six. It was, yeah. I was actually just going to say, I think just from my own experience, and, and a lot of our listeners probably a bit younger w- would have missed that, that, what I call the golden years of the aftermarket yeah. ECU industry, you know, the, the 90s and into the 2000s when the, the crop of cars that were coming through were not as advanced as what we see now. And by that, I mean, CAN bus with multiple uh, ECUs controlling different parts of the car just wasn't really a thing. So plug and play ECUs were, were relatively yeah. quick and easy yeah, for correct. manufacturers to make. So it just gave us quite cost effective access to tuning tools uh, to actually transform, absolutely transform a car or a minimal amount of effort. We don't really need to go and make a complete wiring harness. And obviously as time's gone by, We've moved away from that a little bit. It's much more difficult to do that, albeit obviously not impossible. I'll also mention yeah, your your point about getting an engine running. It, it is really rewarding, and and particularly I think with the larger projects out there as well. You know, you might have been working on a, a project car for a year or more, and and it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of progress, and it can be really easy to get disheartened. And I've always found with the bigger projects we worked on at my old shop. You know, at that point where you get to start the engine for the first time, and there might still be six or 12 months of work ahead before it rolls out the door, but that just reinvigorates the whole team and it's just like, yeah, okay, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now, let's go. So that that, that is a really important part of, of, of any build, I think. Obviously, as tuners, we, we get to experience that firsthand time and time again. All right, let, let's get back to Motec. So, I mean, you probably couldn't go to a better place to to learn about tuning. So talk about that evolution in, in your own experience and how you move from mechanical and fabrication more into the electronic side of things. Yeah, that was a a major, like, you know, sort of career move for me that. And, and, and of course, when, you know, back in like 95, et cetera, you you weren't really, you know, computer savvy compared to what sort of teenagers or anybody is, you know, nowadays, you know, you sort of, you didn't really like, I even lied on my job interview about, um, yeah, I know about Windows and Excel, DOS, you know, know all that. That's fine, you know, and, and I absolutely crapped myself because I had to go home and like tell my dad to teach me how to use a computer before I started my job at Motec, you know. Fake it till you make it. hundred <laughs> percent. I'm still doing it today. No. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, like it was something that you could associate with, you know, cars and cool stuff, you know, with the use of a laptop, you know, because Back then, you know, laptops weren't as advanced as they are today and, you know, they were, they were quite clunky and hard to use and stuff like that. And, and I mean, when I first started Motec, we're all, it was all MS-DOS, you know, like it was the old M4 days. It was the M48 and the, the, the Holy Grail, the M8ECU, <laughs> you know, like that were the things to have. And, and we had like, um, I2 Pro, which was designed and built by the general manager at the time, Ken Douglas. You know, like 
Ken Douglas was a manager at Motec and, and he wrote I2 Pro. You know, so he was <clears throat> managing the place and also writing the code to make the software and data logging analysis tool. You know, like that's how small the company potentially was, you know. And then, my God, the M800 come out and that was like another level that was. And, and the early M800 ECUs from Motec, even though were MS-DOS, weren't they? They they only like I think it was version two software. They went to like a Windows based. I do recall I had a, an M forty eight back in my my Evo drag car back in the day, and after going to the M eight hundred with the Windows software, oh, every time yeah. I I had the the displeasure I'd call it now of of turning an M four or an M eight, you sort of shook your head that DOS uh, interface. I mean, it was it was just what it was at the time, you know, it sign was, of the yeah. times. But yeah, um, yeah it's, it's very frustrating when you go back, and I think now on you know Windows ten machine, it's actually just about an impossibility to tune the older yeah. older M4s, et cetera. It makes it very difficult. Yeah, 100%. And you had to earn your money, didn't you? You know, you couldn't just highlight a group of sales and increase the numbers, decrease it. It was like manually page up and down and, my God, your, your fingers would go home sore, you know, if you had a big day on the dyno, so to speak. So Yeah, the advent of being able to select a, a group of cells and sort of make an across-the-board change was was definitely a game changer. I mean, stuff we take for granted on, on just about any ECU these days, but just for the tuner, the, the workflow, particularly if you're making wholesale changes to, to an existing map, uh, was was absolutely amazing. All right, so to talk to us about the, the evolution of your sort of knowledge on tuning, how, how did you get started with that? Um, you know, what, what was your sort of roles at Motec? We were involved in like um, customer support and also we were doing um, development of products, you know, at Motec. So we would, for instance, like the, the Nissan Pulsar GTIR was, well, it's current, wasn't it? It was a new thing and we sort of, we had one of those. We had to like find wiring diagrams and we had to hack a plug off and make a plug and play. And then we, we had to like reverse engineer the cam sensor, the crank sensor combination. And then like some code would be then written to make a, a ref sync mode for the, for the crank trigger assembly. And then we'd also then make diagrams available and then a start map available for the dealer network and all this sort of stuff. So it was was those sort of projects really that we sort of got involved in sort of tuning really. And there was all sorts of applications where we sort of, you would learn all the time because, you know, at the time I was working a lot with um, Rally Art in Australia back with like Ed Odinsky and, you know, back in the old Evolution 5 and 6 days and stuff like that. So we'd do some, like, mapping with them and we'd, we'd sort of, like, you know, have different anti-lag strategies and we'd do testing. And, and I think that's something you've got to really put a value on is your relationships that you do have with some of your customers. And when you do have a good long-term relationship with a customer in a particular discipline, whether it be drag racing or uh, historic sports car racing or whatever, then your your skill level and fine-tuning of that particular engine or discipline, it, it becomes, you know, first class really. I think that's a really good point that most people probably would, would disregard. But, I mean, 
as a as a professional tuner, you're kind of limited to the experience that your customers provide. And what I mean by that, you get access obviously to the engines that are brought to you and yeah. the disciplines, the types of motorsport that those customers are involved in. And I mean, I, I was very fortunate that my own drag car performed pretty well on the world stage, which gave me then access to other very high level drag cars. But by by being able to tune these very high level drag cars, that gave me experience that would have been very, very difficult to get otherwise. And it would have been almost an impossibility if I was only learning on my own car. So just each of those individual experiences just expands your your knowledge so dramatically, gives you insight into other tools and applications, et cetera. So I think that that's really important uh, to to sort of embrace that side of things. At, at what point did you sort of decide to actually do your own thing? And I mean, obviously, there's there's a bit of a transition here because you've moved from Melbourne across the UK as well, which on face value, I hear the, the weather's lovely in the UK. For a, an Australian, seems like a, maybe an unusual choice. So t- tell us about that. Yeah, it was always too hot in Australia. So I decided to you know, move somewhere a bit colder, really. So, but um, no, we, I, I went from um, Motec Australia to Motec Europe. So uh, Motec Europe had a position available, which was for a technician, uh, much the same role as in Australia, but it was more track support orientated and back in. It's infancy. We were doing a lot of like tuning itself, you know, as a service from Motec Europe. We we're doing like a lot of dealership support for dealers, you know, in different industries. I guess um, on that note as well, you know, the, Australia is is definitely uh, got a very very active motorsport industry. However, kind of the pinnacle really in Australia yeah. is the the Supercars series, which is a great series. When you compare that to the the sort of level of motorsport in Europe at, at the higher end, I mean, you know, you've got access to to anything and everything. So, is is that sort of a, a key to expanding your skill set and knowledge as well? Getting access to all of those sorts of, of vehicles. Yeah, hundred percent, and that is the main key of being in Europe, really, and or England. And you know, like ten minutes down the road, I'm at Silverstone. You know, I can be at many, many race circuits, you know, within hours from where I am. You know, we've got um, lots of World Rally Championship teams. We've got, like, lots of GT teams. There's, you know, there's go-karts up the corner. You know, like, there's there's lots and lots of different sort of motorsport disciplines over here. And they're, they're all, you know, at a massively high level. So you look into, like, um, You've got British touring cars, you've got LMP cars, you've got the historic side of things. You know, it, it's a, it's just a, a much bigger industry over here, isn't it? I, I guess the other element with that is, I mean, if you look at the the pinnacle, obviously you've got F1 and the majority, or at least a large number of the F1 teams are, from what I understand, all located in and about sort of one relatively small area of, of the UK. And it's not only that, though, but because those teams are all located there all of the supporting manufacturers of components parts etc kind of end up growing up around them as well so again just access very easily and in close proximity to to all of those companies yeah it's amazing when you first sort of come to england you it's really hard to know the law of the land as far as like 
where stuff's located and whatever. But it's it's amazing when you've been here for a little a little while that the amount of tuning shops or engineering shops all hidden across the the country. It, they're absolutely phenomenal. You know, you could you could walk into somebody's barn and there'll be like an old Formula One car and you know a, a Group B rally car or something like that. And you know, it, it's it always it still surprises me to this day, really. So, but it's quite a quite refreshing to be located here. And of course, I, I was traveling loads. I was doing something like I think 140 or 160 flights per year. Just sort of cruising around the world, just pissing about tuning cars, you know. So, on the note you mentioned about sort of the the, the cars hidden away, I do remember it was 2019. We we headed over to the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and we, we bumped into you over there, and we did a bit of a tour around after that, and visited the likes of of Renvale, who do the wiring harnesses for for almost every F1 team. And uh, we on the last day we had a bit of spare time, and someone had suggested we we go and visit uh, Jeff Page, uh, yeah. which was a name at the time I I, I didn't recognise, but. Uh, Pivotal in the uh, the Ford RS two hundred era, but uh, walking into his workshop, which I don't even think there was a sign out. It, it was just nothing yeah. to look at, and walk in there, and, and he was working away a week before the Silverstone Grand Prix on uh, I think one of Ed and Senna's uh, original uh, F one cars. You know, a car that's, that's that's literally got no value. You couldn't put a number on it, and there's uh, Hart four one five T original F one turbo motors sitting there. There's there's the Cosworth V6 turbo engine, it, w- it was just mind-blowing. Uh, so, you know, th- this is the sort of stuff I guess you see all across the UK. However, I, I-, I digress. So how long were you involved with MoTeC Europe and-, and at what point did you decide, hey, you know what, let's make a go of this and, and-, and start my own company? Yeah, I, I worked for MoTeC Europe for nine years and um, and I loved every minute of it really. And there, there-, there becomes a time when you sort of, want to be your own boss, don't you? You know, because you you want to perhaps do other things. And and, and also as well, you, you end up kind of a bit sort of numb to the day-to-day grind of things, don't you? So, you know, for me, I wanted to keep the old intellectual stimulation going and, yeah, become a small business owner, so to speak, and then um, run my own thing, really. So that's when... EPS was formed, Electronic Performance Systems, and we were a distributor for MoTeC products, uh, which is probably 90% of the business. And then, you know, we're, we're big dealers of um, motorsport sensors from KA, um, and we do as new performance products and Turbo Smart as well. And, and that's kind of the business model because I can kind of just get on and do most things ourselves. I, you know, I'm sitting here in my wiring loom bench in my house. You know, um, I could make my looms. I've got a friend down the road that's got a rolling road that we can hire for a reasonable rate. So whenever we need to do any sort of mapping and calibration work, instead of trying to kill yourself on the street, we sort of tend to use the rolling road and uh, get good results because everything's proven then, isn't it? You know, you've got you've got something to reference to and you can't lie with a dyno if you run it right. So, you know, it's, it's definitely the way forward really. So that's that's kind of what we do now. 
Okay. Uh, I, I want to dive into the, the dino element specifically shortly, but uh, before we do that, just to sort of to wrap up what EPS is at this point in time, uh, is, is it just you or do you have staff? Um, and and what, what sort of cars are you working on? Is it exclusively race cars or you, basically anything that comes through the door? Yeah, it, it's just me. So um, I sort of we do the accounts, we do everything really. So um, there's just myself that runs the company and does everything. Um, so probably most of it by default is is motorsport um, related business. I do some road cars, but we do well. We start a lot of NDAs, so we, we we tend to do projects for other companies that people don't want people to know about, you know, or to know that we're involved with, which is fine. By definition, we can't talk about those. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. You just got to wear a plain black T-shirt and go to work and just sort of do those. So they're kind of interesting as well. And I I don't mind, like, if if you've got a a big company and you need a bit of a hand, you know, which we all sometimes do, don't we? You know, it's, it's good to get a bit of a hand or a second opinion with some stuff, so... We sort of get us involved and we sort of help help people along the way really so i quite enjoy that to be fair so uh, i just want to dive into the the business element just just briefly because i think a lot of people kind of are good at something be it tuning or fabrication or just spinning spanners and and they decide hey you know what I, i'm sick of working for a boss so I'm, I'm going to start my own company and do this and you could be the best in the world at whatever that discipline may be. And at least in my experience, this, this is exactly how I sort of started out. I kind of fell into a role of I'm going to open a tuning shop. And and what I quickly found, particularly if you sort of have a, a bit of a reputation and, and you end up with a lot of inquiries is, you know, in, in your eight-hour working day, or let's be honest, it's probably more like a 12-hour working day when you're getting started, uh, you only probably have about a third of that time available where you can do the, the job that you enjoy, that you're good at. And then the bit that's easy to to miss uh, is that the rest of the time you're dealing with customers, you're invoicing, you're doing your accounts, yeah. uh, dealing with suppliers, quoting out jobs. And, and that part, I mean, at least for me, was was not my, my preferred uh, sort of aspect of the job. But it's also, when you're doing that, it's a necessary part of it, but, but it's also very difficult because you're not actually making money. And that's where a lot of companies sort of get to a point where they're, they're going to bring someone else in to do that job, the accounting or the customer service side of things. And, and that's sort of that, that natural expansion a lot of people go through. So how, how have you dealt with that? How do you sort of balance that? I, I totally get what you're saying with that because nowadays there's so many multimedia platforms where people can get in contact with you, you know, WhatsApp, emails, this, that, blah, blah, blah. And, and sometimes it becomes too much, really, doesn't it? And you often see this with my replies to emails, really, of massive long – people would send me a page-long essay of blah, 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 and I'll send them one line back. <laughs> so Because you, you just haven't got time, maybe, to spend, you know, telling war and peace, you know, to some customers, you know. Like, I'd rather just pick up the phone and just, like, dude, speak to me, let's – get some one-to-one conversation going um, about your project and then, you know, we can sort of cut out all the bullshit because I hate 
spending hours and hours behind a keyboard or whatever, you know, because some days you're just so mentally drained of if you if you're sitting in with somebody's project and a lot of these cars are worth a lot of money, aren't they? And for, for the money you charge, it's peanuts compared to the value that you potentially bring Absolutely. to the to the project. And you know, and I had one guy I was dynoing his car with him. And I, I'm quite open with all the dynos and anything that I do with customers. You know, if you want to sit in a car with me while I tune your car, you can, we can talk and whatever. And, and, and this particular guy was, you know, I always remember this because he's like, Oh my God, Dave, you never answer your phone. And I said, Well, I'm sorry, but a lot of people pay me a lot of money to concentrate on their projects so that we can, uh, you know, make sure that everything's all right. And he's gone, oh, no, that's no excuse. I said, that's fine. Okay. And we started getting into the car and anyhow, my phone rang. I said, hang on a minute. <laughs> Turn off the engine. Answer the phone. David Rowe, EPS Motorsport. And there's like, you know, eh, 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 eh. And then, okay, okay, ready to go again. And then he's like, okay, you're right. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And he's, and then we started again. Then, sorry, phone's ringing again. And he goes, I get the point. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's hard to sort of focus on doing the job when, when your phone's ringing off the hook. And I think what I saw as well, and it's probably worse now. I mean, back when I was running my shop, Instagram wasn't a thing. WhatsApp wasn't really around. But now there's so many mediums where is, the customer yeah. can reach out. And, and I think as well, sort of barriers kind of get lost. I mean, yeah. I, I distinctly remember uh, getting text messages at, at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night and, and I'm, I'm out with my friends, you know, oh, my, my car won't something or other, something, something's not working. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, let's talk about that at, at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. For, for now, I'm done. But, I mean, you know, that, that is part, of, part and parcel of it. Now, a couple of other things just on the business front as well. At least what I've sort of seen for the most part around the world, I think it's probably safe to say it goes around the world, is there's sort of a, a race to the bottom almost in terms of what people are charging for a service. Now, this goes with products as well. You know, aftermarket products, generally, there's a fairly meagre margin for the workshop on, on supplying a part. And you know you've you've got a, a lot of companies now supplying parts, and maybe it's a part time job, and they're okay if they make fifty dollars on a blow off valve or a wastegate, for example. But for a for a workshop, you know that that's probably not acceptable. So the first question there is how, how do you sort of work with with that when there's people out there selling essentially the same product or similar products and are prepared to to do it for for next to no margin? I think that's what people have got to realize when you buy a certain part for your car, you know, like that might be just bolt on and forget. But when you buy something that's potentially so technically involved, you've got to value the support and service that you'll potentially receive from the person that you buy it from. So if you go and buy an aftermarket ECU from eBay, then expect somebody to just like, Oh, yeah, I'll fit that for you. Oh, yeah, I'll take your call on Sunday at 10 o'clock at night. It just ain't going to happen, is it? You know, and, and that's potentially what you get a lot of, isn't it? You know, you, you, you kind of get that. And, and I know when I first started EPS, you know, like one of my customers that was, is really influential in like business and personal. He sort of, he mentioned, you know, like, why are you so busy? 
And I sort of replied, well, I'm just trying to make everybody happy, aren't I? You know, and, and he said, well, don't. He goes, you need to cut 25% of your business. And, and that's mm-hmm. what the road that we went down and we did. And he said, just write on a whiteboard all the things you do and what they bring to the company, whether it be money, value, grief, whatever. He said, write them all down the whiteboard. And he goes, it'll be soon evident of what really winds you up and brings you, you know, sort of no potential income and takes up a lot of your time. That's a really important element that that is not obvious. I think uh, pretty much comes back to the uh, Pareto's principle, the 80-20 rule, you know, sort of 80% of your your sort of success, be that income, whatever, is going to come from 20% of your efforts. Yeah, and yeah. if you don't, if you don't realize that that principle pretty much goes throughout business, throughout life, uh, you're obviously not going to be looking for that 20%. Uh, I mean, I'll just kind of bring that back to my own experience. Uh, when I was running STM, we, we were dealing initially, I had a, a name in the Mitsubishi community and that sort of transferred across to the Subaru community as well. And I mean, without trying to sort of pigeonhole uh, young enthusiasts, what I found over time was we were getting a lot of cars that came in for tuning work and, you know, that they'd book the car in, that's fine, we're going to tune it, it's it's X, Y, Z, and then the car would roll in and you look at it straight away and you're like, all right, so this actually needs about uh, 20 hours of workshop work before it's ready to go anywhere near the dyno. And you know, I'm, I'm talking uh, intercoolers literally held into the car with, with race tape or cable ties, you know, and it just did my head in. The problem was you had customers that, had a, a misrepresentation of, of what they were going to get. Their expectations weren't matched with reality. When you're faced with a car that, that's sort of built at that level, you're not, not able to deliver a good product. So what we actually did, because that was so time-consuming to get a result and it was hard to charge the work properly, was we sort of did a, a bit of a pivot with the business and we actually focused on some of the late, later model vehicles. So here in New Zealand, uh, that was the late model Holden and HSV, so for the US community, basically GM, LS, mm. uh, V8s, and, and also the, the later model Ford as well. And what we found we were dealing with later model cars, uh, much, much less cable ties holding the car together. So that was good. Uh, we could provide a good quality package of parts that we knew worked. It was tested. We knew it all fitted. Uh, there was no faff involved. But the most important thing was we could then put it on the dyno. And normally we could tell within, you know, three or four kilowatts what what the result was going to be. The customer's stoked. We're also dealing generally with a slightly older clientele who had a little bit more money, so less of the champagne dreams and, and beer budget situation. So yeah, you know, that 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 was sort of my my 8020 sort of revelation. So sorry, I, I've I've sort of uh just just walked all over the top of you there. So let's get back to your story with your your mentor. Yeah, that that was the goal, and that's exactly what we done. Was we just sort of had a cull of you know, I mean, you never fall out with a customer, don't you? You you try to let them fall out with you, <laughs> so you try to either gradually just either perhaps just slightly increase your prices or you know whatever to sort of try to change direction on your business and stuff. And and nowadays you can kind of do that as well with like your multimedia and other stuff can't you you know if you want to if you want to tune ferraris you start posting stuff about ferraris don't you you know and you kind of you can you, you can manipulate you know what you sort of work on and stuff like that sometimes you know so 
that's, you know, kind of a good thing really. So, but back to like what you were saying about, you know, the, the expectations and stuff like that of, of some people, like, you know, you get some guys that can barely afford a car and, you know, the, the car that they're playing with. And just because you buy 800 horsepower turbo doesn't mean your car's going to make 800 horsepower, you know, so. Yeah, I think there's a there's a big disconnect, unfortunately, thanks to social media and the car magazines back before social media was the sort of driving force. And yeah, I, I saw that mistake being made by so many customers, which kind of got to that situation I was talking about with the cable tyres and the race tape. Yeah. And I, I don't want to knock the young enthusiast. I mean, I was there one once upon a time, and no doubt you were yourself. You know, you, you're doing the best with the budget you've got, and it's always easy in hindsight. But at the time, you know, you're just going through doing the best you can. I mean, the advice I would probably give to those customers is just take a step back and, and understand, first of all, the the overall budget of, of the project that you're trying to do. As you say, just buying the 800 horsepower turbo does not therefore make an 800 horsepower engine. There's so much more goes into it, which which is easy to overlook when you're shopping for parts. And you know, by trying to do less with your budget, you're probably going to get a better result, be happier, be less stressed and probably keep the uh, the, the workshop uh, owner or the, the tuner probably smiling as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I also, I'm interested if, if you can sort of share with us, if it's not sort of uh, too, too sort of private, how do you charge your tuning out? Is it, is it charged on an hourly rate or are you charging out sort of th- this is what it's going to cost and then if you want uh, not control, it's an additional. If you want cam control tuned, it's an additional. You know, there's so many different ways. Mm, I, I pretty much just charge like per day, you know, so I'm not interested in doing five cars a day, you know, none of that crap of, you know, like, group bookings and like in and out, yep. you know, I'd rather just do one car per day, book it into the dyno, and then it's like a fixed rate for the day higher. And then it's uh, 60 pounds per hour for the dyno higher. And then that's it really. And we kind of finish when we finish really. And sometimes you make it look too easy, don't you? Because, because you know, like you, you you've kind of done, you know, probably – two or 300 Mitsubishi Evolution 10 rally cars, you know, my God, I can tell you what injector time it should have. I can tell you what ignition it should have with, you know, what type of race fuel, et cetera. So, you know, some, t- some days you, you do make it look easy and, and it can be quite a quick day. Then other days you can be, you can be on the dyno for quite a long time, can't you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, one of the changes I actually made uh, back in, in my tuning business was we actually switched from charging an hourly rate for our tuning. Uh, there was an element where we still had to do that, but generally if we get a car in for a full tune, uh, we actually charged a, a fixed amount for that car. And and the reason we did that was some some advice I ended up getting, which which wasn't apparent to me at the time. You'd know yourself, and it pretty much comes back to your, your Mitsubishi Evolution story. The, the better you get as a tuner, the more experience you get, the faster you can do a tune. So you kind of, if you're charging on an hourly rate, it's almost a bit of a case of you're shooting yourself in the foot because the better you get, the quicker the tune goes, the less money you make. So uh, there's an element of that as well, which I think you know isn't immediately obvious because you're not really charging an hourly rate. You're charging for that experience, you know, the 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 ten or fifteen years or whatever it's been in the industry doing that, seeing these same problems, seeing these same cars, and knowing, like you say, 
what timing that the engine's going to take for a given fuel injection timing, what sort of boost pressure it will take, etc. You know, what what price do you put on that? So I, I, again, that's that's just an element that that I I embraced, and we are going pretty deep down the the business side of this rabbit hole. So I want to come back and talk a little bit about some of the cool projects that that I know you've been involved with over the years, and. I, I think we initially met at Pikes Peak where you're running your your Audi Quattro Group B replica, which uh, people want to find out more. We've we've got a tech tour of that car on our YouTube channel. We'll put some links in the in the show notes to that. Uh, but you know, as I followed you, you seem to be able to get your hands on some incredible machinery. When we we're at Goodwood, you um somehow managed to fluke the the pleasure of having a drive in one of these cars, which was a, a Sauber Mercedes C9. Group C race car. Uh, now, I, I'm guessing that that car basically is is priceless. It, you, you couldn't replace it, correct? Correct. There was only a certain amount of chassis built. It was in a time of Group C racing was like on par with Formula One, and it was you know like there are absolutely amazing cars that the the speed that they used to you know, be able to circulate racetracks on and also how quickly they developed as well. If you look at the different Group C cars from year to year, they were massively different, you know, like although, you know, like a lot of championship cars nowadays, you'll probably struggle to see the difference between one year to another, whereas in the Group C era, it was a massive difference, you know, they, they had like, you know, crazy designers, which were all, you know, rock stars in their own right, um, designing these cars and they were developing engines and they were sort of, you know, producing parts and development parts that were, you know, always getting, you know, thrown out the car and they were made to run long distances, you know, like you, you look at a Porsche 962 and, if you get in one, they're nearly like a road car to drive. They're so user-friendly because they had to drive for 24 hours. Despite the ability to, to run for 24 hours in endurance racing like Le Mans, these, these cars were incredibly powerful, correct? You know, what, what sort of numbers yeah. were we talking for, for the, uh, the Mercedes C9 that we're, we're, we're talking about here? The, the C9, we, I mean, we sort of don't really run the car anymore, so we can tell you what sort of power it was making, but like, on low power, we were seven hundred, and then <laughs> yeah, that was that was minimum boost. And then if we if we cranked it right up, um, it would run nine hundred and thirty horsepower. So, and then if you crank it up any more, it'd lift the heads off. <laughs> so. Okay, so a, a car like this, I, I'm assuming one of the problems is for those who are running these historic cars is the the electronics in them. Now, I mean, we're talking circa nineteen, late nineteen eighties. Yeah. You know, the electronics festival very dated by modern standards, but I'm guessing it's probably not possible to get access to the software to even talk to and calibrate these older ECUs. Yeah, correct. You know, there's not not many of the old boys that were around of those days that are still available today to to modify and tune the cars. So they kind of wrote it into the rule book that electronics were free. So that allowed teams to then use a MoTeC or heaven forbid they wanted to use anything else. They could use that as well, you know, to, you know, sort of run the car really. And, and that really opened it up to allow us to 
retrofit some of these cars to, you know, make them make them you know run as good as they can. Now, with a car again, just about uh, priceless when we're talking about the the dollar value of it and the historic significance of it as well. I'm guessing there's an onus of responsibility on you to to basically retain as much of the historic accuracy, I guess, was what would be a way of explaining it, yeah, as possible, and, and, and also the ability, if required, to, to revert it to period correct how it was in the day. So mm. when you're talking about an electronics retrofit, there's a couple of ways we, we could go about this. I mean, obviously, the the... The cleanest way, I guess, is to just fully rewire the entire car, but that's a pretty big job. Uh, alternatively, we could repin uh, the connector for the the ECU that was on it for an aftermarket ECU like a Motec. What was your philosophy there, and how were you doing this? I mean, to be honest, that's you know like what you first said about completely rewiring the car and starting again from scratch. That's pretty much what we do with most of the cars. You know, we we tend to um, it's a lot more involved in a car like that because you still want to use some of the old dash switches, the, the rotary pots that they used to use to change the map selection or, or boost levels, you know, the old oil lights, you want them to light up for, you know, warnings and all sorts of stuff like that, really. So, yes, there is some compromises, you know, because you can't just whack a electronic drive-by-wire throttle on a Group C car, they just weren't like that back in the day. You know, like the the cars were always warmed up in the pits by the mechanics. You know, held at a high idle speed. You know, blah blah blah. So you, you're still being very sympathetic to how the cars actually should be run in period because the old wastegates. You know, on the C C nine. You know, they're, they're a massive plenum chamber, and, and doing the boost control on that compared to like a modern turbo smart race gate as, as light and day difference. You know, you, you, it's just not going to be as good, you know, with a, a modern wastegate on it. But it kind of is what it is. For the wastegates, for instance, although they look old and big in period, like certainly on the inside of them, they're, they're a different story. You know, we can kind of put an aluminium insert in there and we could sort of reduce the, the volume of compressed air that you can sort of give it so the response time's then better, you know, for the boost control and you can sort of modify things in that sort of respect to then get the best out of both worlds really. So so make, make them as good as they can be while still yeah. retaining that period correctness. Yeah, 100%. And as we said about the power levels of the car, you, you really want to make them drivable as well because, you know, a lot of these guys are gentleman drivers, aren't they? They're not Michael Schumacher, you know, like you, <laughs> some of our Group C drivers, you know, their, their diet's a bloody cheese board, you know, so they, <laughs> they just want to have some fun in their race car and, you know, like, um, they're not athletes. Not such, at the peak so. of athletic ability. <laughs> no, so we, we kind of try to make it as user friendly with the modern management system and, you know, like turbo boost control with throttle position dependent and also speed dependent, you know, so that way you can, you can really make the car nice and mild in the lower gears and then part throttles. It doesn't try to kill you and all this sort of stuff. So that's the joy of what you sort of have available really. A couple of things there. I, I think most people w when they're considering you know, what happens on a dyno are, are thinking about the power and the torque number 
But what you've just mentioned there, I believe, is, is so much more critical, particularly with a very high-powered engine. And I've talked about this on the podcast numerous times, but particularly that ability to map the, the lights of our boost pressure versus throttle position because if we don't do that the, the turbo is so good at making boost pressure mm. that you know, we can we can pull the throttle back to, to 50% or, or thereabouts mm. and you're probably still making mm. upwards of 80 maybe 90% of the engine's peak torque that you got at wide open throttle so it gives a very non-linear uh, torque modulation to the driver which particularly for non-professional drivers with a very very powerful engine that that can be very difficult to to manage. Now on that front, I, I can only imagine that back in eighty seven, whatever it was, you know, the the ECUs available to Sauber were were probably cutting edge. I'm guessing that they look pretty ordinary based on on even a rudimentary aftermarket ECU that's at the consumer level these days. I mean, given their due, they they used the best that they had available at the time, you know, and. You know, okay, they they could probably get to the same result as maybe you know, or nearly the same result as a modern ECU now, but it would take them a lot longer to get there. You know, and nowadays with the add-ons that an aftermarket ECU could bring to the party with with onboard data logging, you know, wideband lambda control, um, not control, you know, all these sort of fail safes for like low oil pressure fuel pressure, monitoring for the injector flow rate, you know, like these are all things that a modern ECU can do and it just makes the thing run better. You take for granted. I mean, you you look at a, if you go buy an old car, like buy an old Mark II Escort back in the day, you know, like the, the thing was a bit shit cold and it was like, you know, chug, whatever. But my God, you go buy a little Ford Fiesta now that's a modern car it's you don't even think it'll just start from cold it'll run in high altitude it'll run really good won't it you know and and that's all the stuff that the modern engine management can bring if you spend the time to tune it definitely i I just want to focus on on one of the elements you mentioned there because i i I think this is one that most people wouldn't even understand is is an option. So you, you mentioned fuel pressure monitoring there, and you know in older ECUs or where we didn't have the sensors, you you didn't monitor fuel pressure, and what you did was foolishly assume that the fuel pressure was either a fixed value, let's say three bar, or or maybe you've got a boosted engine and and you're you've got a manifold pressure referenced regulator, in which case you're assuming again that the the fuel pressure is always three bar plus or minus your boost or or, or vacuum. And the key to that is what we're assuming there is we've got a consistent differential pressure across the fuel injector and why that's important is that the amount of fuel for a given pulse width the injector can supply uh, is relative to that differential pressure. So what I mean is for a fixed fixed pulse width being sent to the injector, as we raise the differential pressure, so the fuel pressure versus manifold pressure rises, we're going to actually supply a, a larger quantity of fuel, more massive fuel. So obviously that has an effect on your air fuel ratio. So that that for the longest time, particularly when I first got started, that, that was just how it was. We, we never ever monitored fuel pressure. Maybe uh, one of the startup checks we were temporarily put a fuel pressure gauge on so we could set our, our base fuel pressure and, and after that we, we were good to go. And it wasn't until I started monitoring fuel pressure with, with logging initially and you sort of actually see how much that fuel pressure does vary, particularly with some of the uh, poorer quality fuel pressure regulators. So 
obviously the knock-on effect there is that your FUEL ratio is always wandering a little bit, generally not, not too much, but, but a little bit, and that becomes more of a problem as our specific power levels creep up. And now these modern ECUs, and this I think goes across the board for, for most good quality ECUs, will actually take in the differential fuel pressure into the fuel model and and basically they can account for small discrepancies in fuel pressure. Uh, maybe even your, your fuel pump is starting to die and your fuel pressure is way off. If you've got actually enough injector headroom, the ECU can can raise that injector pulse width enough to still keep the, the air fuel ratio where it should be. So these are like one of, one of my favourite little additions that these modern ECUs bring to the table. And it just sits there in the background. You're driving the car, you don't yeah. even know it's happening, but it just does such a nice job. So sorry, I, again, I, I, I digress no, there. No, no, no. I, I totally get it. To be honest, like when you when you take on some of these projects as well, there, there seems to be um, nowadays. You, you probably find this as well, Andre. Like when you get a new application or a new config that you've got to create as a startup file from a blank sheet of paper telling you where all the pins are, to making the engine run is much longer now. You know mm. the, the amount of numbers you've got to crunch. To get the the fuel model right and sensors calibrated and and you know you've got a, a linear fuel cal done for an injector and like back to like you know we talked about talk about injectors and you know volumetric efficiency and stuff like that like if you look at a Motec you know like they have a drop down menu for a linear fuel cal for the injector now to create that linear fuel cal for the injector. It sits on a rig for nearly two days straight, pulsing the injector at different battery voltages, different fuel pressures, different openings of the injector, all to spit out a massive report that gets compiled so that you know if the fuel demand is X amount of microliters for a cycle that the injector has to open, it looks at the fuel pressure, looks at the battery voltage, opens the injector that amount, and it will put the right amount in. I think that that sort of advance in the characterization of injectors, and, and I'd say probably more so the understanding of the injector, and I think probably, and he's probably not the only one who is doing it, but Paul, you're of Injector Dynamics, uh, who I think was ex-Motec US as well originally, I'll say as well, ex Motec anyway. I, I think he kind of did a lot of that background that sort of opened a lot of people's eyes to to some of the subtle nuances of of what the injector does and and how important a, a, a full understanding and characterization of the injector was. You know, back in the early days, I, I've tuned ECUs where that understanding just wasn't there to the point that the ECU didn't even have an injector dead time or, or battery voltage compensation table. It just didn't exist. So if the battery voltage fluctuated, well, your if your ratio fluctuated massively as well. So you know, take it to, to the point we're at. It's demanding more and more of the tuner. As you mentioned there, obviously in a lot of these ECUs where this data is difficult or basically impossible for the injector, to, uh, sorry, for the injector, for the tuner to come up with. You, you, you need expensive test equipment. The manufacturers like Motec or whoever it may be are doing this heavy lifting for us and giving us that data. So that simplifies things. But I mean, that's only one element, the injectors we've talked about here. I mean, if we talk about uh, aspects such as charge temperature estimate, uh, which goes sort of a little bit further than just looking at our intake air temperature. 
Uh, what we really want to know is what the charge temperature is as it goes past the intake valve into the cylinder. That's the key element. But you know, there's a transit time from when the air goes past the inlet air temp sensor and gets monitored, then goes maybe through the plenum chamber, picks up heat from maybe a cast alloy inlet manifold. Maybe it's at low RPM where the airspeed's relatively low. So there's an element there of, of sort of what's what's the difference in that temperature going to be. So we've got charge temperature estimate tables, which are their simplest sort of look at engine coolant temperature and air temperature, uh, RPM and manifold pressure, and kind of has this very complex table of, of what how it will sort of factor in those elements and give us the actual charge temperature. But for again, for the tuner, that's often difficult to to calibrate accurately. So what I'm getting at is, you know, is there a, a balance here between being able to do an absolutely perfect job versus something that the average tuner is actually capable of tuning and getting those results? So, you know, are EC manufacturers essentially purposely dumbing down what they are capable of doing so that the average tuner out there is going to be able to give the customer a good result? I think the EC manufacturers are, are really um, not pressured. That they all want to have the best results for their products. So I think they're definitely necessary because certainly if you don't have a particular strategy or some sort of calculation available or something like that that people want in the ECU, guarantee they'll ask for it. <laughs> so least least if you have got that um, option available within the software, you could then fine-tune it and use it. And what you often find was like back to what I mentioned before about having to occupy all the tables and, and, and get like a, a good base map and, and sort of some strategies like fine-tuned before you even start the car, that's where you need to just make sure that you've got sensible numbers in all those tables. And then mm. what you then need to be doing is like occupying your first sort of dyno session with, you know, just some good quality fuel calibration and ignition table calibration and, you know, stuff like that because at the end of the day, it's all good having all these control strategies on there and, and, and the space shuttle of ECUs, et cetera. But at the end of the day, if some of the base calibration and sort of mapping of the ECU isn't solid. The result's compromised. hundred percent. You know, like you, so many times I've like gone to like, you know, oh yeah, it's been mapped by so-and-so and you, you jump on there and it, and things pulling like 30% lambda trim. And they're, all they're doing yeah. is relying on closed loop control to get him out of the shit. And you can't do that. No, you can't. I, I, it's <laughs> great that you just brought that up because I mean, we, we so often get asked at HPA for, you know, I want a base map for my XYZ engine. And, and my answer is always, you're actually better to start from basics and build your own base map rather than relying on something you found off the internet from your your uncle's you know nephew whatever it may be because without almost without fail there are exceptions but almost without fail every time I, I've I've sort of seen a calibration from someone else or one of these supposed base maps that's been brought in from the internet it, it's got some kind of baked in error that if you don't know it's there if you don't fix it 
it's going to haunt you. At worst case, yeah. it could end up resulting in engine damage, but at, at best, it's probably going to waste significant amounts of your time chasing your tail, trying to figure out why the hell the thing isn't doing what you expect. You know, whereas if you start from basics, I know, particularly for novice tuners, it sounds like a daunting task, but it, it honestly isn't. And it just takes right. a little bit of time and a methodical approach. And you've got this base map. I think the other thing that people think is that if they don't have the perfect numbers in, in their base map, the engine, when they crank it for the first time, is just going to explode and all the pistons mm. and rods are going to splay out on the on the floor. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth, particularly at idle you can put just about any amount of fuel or ignition timing in it. Worst case, the engine just won't run. It's not going to do damage. So you've actually got a really big window. It's not till you start running the engine at higher load and higher RPM where that tuning envelope gets a little bit narrower and you have to be a little bit more more on the money. So I, I think, you know, yeah, just, just getting away from under, uh, from assuming that someone else has done a good job because, yes, there's some excellent tuners out there, obviously, but, you know, they're far and away the minority. They're definitely the exception, not the norm. So chances are if you're getting a base map from someone else, probably the best place you could put that is just straight in the trash, I, I believe. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, commercially, you can't rely on that, can you? Because you, whenever you touch any number on that map, you're then responsible. Yes, yeah. You know, not not a hundred percent for it, but it'd be like, you know, I got that from Dave. You know, EPS Motorsport, and all I maybe done was change the coolant temperature fan threshold limit. You know, to turn these fans on a bit earlier. You know. Yeah, but all of a sudden the uh, the ugly looking fuel maps or uh, that there's Dave's responsibility. That that was yeah. another thing that on that note when when I was running my tuning shop, we we wouldn't actually touch up a tune from another tuner for for that very reason. And I mean, yeah. Uh, the the odd customer got got a little bit uh, sort of antsy about that because obviously it's going to cost more money, but. You know, when you explain it to them, like it, it's that that old story. You know, something goes wrong with the engine, and it's the last person to touch the yeah. the, yeah, the, the laptop keyboard. Yeah. That that's your fault. So the finger gets firmly pointed. Yeah. And as you say, it might have only been a, a subtle change, like your your radiator fans. But you know, then all of a sudden, you're you're the one who resulted in that blow up. Let, let's just come back to your your Group C car because I'm quite interested here. You know, with, with obviously the the price point I've kind of gone over a couple of times. Is this sort of something that plays into the tuning approach in terms of not shooting, it doesn't sound like this has come in from what you've said, but not shooting for the absolute maximum that that engine's capable of and what it was running back in the days when it was you know, competitive or is it a case of there's so much sort of money and testosterone kicking around in these historic race classes that uh, they, the customers actually demand the, the maximum the engine's capable of? It's it's a catch 22. You know, we, a lot of the projects I do with like the group C cars and stuff like that, it's, it's involved with the engine builder. And, and, you know, like I do a lot of work with um, a company called X tech engineering and um, they, they manufacture all these engines and, and, you know, they've got an in-house engine dyno facility and their, their knowledge on what they expect from the engine is very realistic. They don't, try to reinvent the wheel with massive power figures and they kind of, you know, they, they kind of realise that what they've got is what they've got and, you know, sort of go from there really. So that's that's kind of a saving grace really. And although they're like expensive um, sort of engines and, you know, like some of them are priceless, you can't get them again and all this sort of stuff, 
to me, it doesn't really matter. Like, I don't really care if it's like a Subaru, you know, rally car or a Group C car. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like, you, you got to provide the, the best tune and the, the best service with, with what tools you've got. And you sort of, you, you tend to treat every engine the same, really. So, you know, the, the saving grace is a lot of the Group C projects and, and the, the big end sort of projects like that. They will allocate quality time for, you know, uh, a dyno session, a workshop installation session where you, you know, calibrate all sensors, you, you make sure the boost pot works, make sure wheel speed sensors work before you get to, you know, a racetrack because it costs a lot to test. And yeah. I don't care who you are, like, you know, uh, if you get to a racetrack, you want to be able to like, you know, check the tire pressures and go. You know, you, you shouldn't be about changing, you know, shift lights or whatever, you know, before you Absolutely. even get there. I think that's that's an area that, that often tuners w- were not actually given enough time that sort of rushed through because there is a significant amount of time, particularly with a, a brand new installation, you know, that process of, of calibrating all of the sensors and going through and, and physically checking every single one of them is working. That that, that can take That's a massive, significant amount of time, time. But much more than, than probably most customers would think. But, you know, it compromises everything and, and ultimately wastes time and money if you get onto the dyno or, for that matter, as you mentioned, there mm. to the racetrack and then find out, you know, you've got a, a dead wheel speed sensor, maybe maybe not so critical for the dyno. But, you know, that, that, that sort of stuff really, it, it's worth checking over thoroughly now another project that i wanted to dive into because i'm personally interested in this and i know a lot of our listeners will be uh another one of the historic engines that i know that you you've been involved with is uh an old formula one turbo engine specifically the heart 415t and it sort of circles back to our our visit to jeff page's workshop because uh, that was the engine installed in ed and senna's car that that we were looking over at the time so uh, can you give us you know i think probably before i get into that that F1 turbo era sort of goes down in history as one of the most wild times in F1. You know, the, the power levels you know, were thrown around 1500 odd horsepower, four and a half, five bar of boost for, for qualifying some really crazy fuels uh, that would probably give you lung cancer just by looking at them wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and the technology that went into these engines, it was, is a very bizarre time, very different to the, the modern turbo hybrid era that we've got now. So, um, you know, start, start with a bit of a rundown, maybe the, the base of that 415T engine because I know it's got one very unique feature. Yeah, that that's a monoblock, isn't it? So yeah. they, uh, I even to this day, I, I still can't picture trying to put valves, even machine valves, in an engine that you have to go through the bottom. So <laughs> it couldn't have been a lot of fun. And for, so, for those who, are, who don't sort of didn't follow that term monoblock, what what David's meaning there is that the head and block were cast and machined as as one piece. So there's no head gasket. There's, I mean, it fixes the problem once and for all of lifting heads, yeah. though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's not an issue, is it? Because no, there isn't no, there isn't a head there. gasket. <laughs> so, but I mean the you know the the valve angles are, are very shallow. You know, which is good for a race engine, isn't it? You know, to to have a, a you know a shallow valve angle and, and they were high compression and like I, I still can't fathom this 
Like, and they all, all would have been hand machined back then. There was no CNC machines back then, were there? They either like broke a lot of stuff, <laughs> you know, when they were trying to machine them, or, or they, you know, had really good old school machinists to to do a good job. And that particular project, like, believe it or not, we actually done that in one day. That project, we wow. we wired it, got it running, and we mapped it in a day. Because we're on a massive time crunch, because that that car had to do some film work for a picture and documentary. That was another job that Xtech Engineering took on, and the thing wouldn't run because of old electrics, and you know, and you got no diagnostics, so you don't know what's going on. It could be just one wire. It could be could be anything, couldn't it? You know, if mm. you, you you take for granted the the level of diagnostics we've got available nowadays, you know, so they they sort of phoned us up and we we armed ourselves with a Motec and a wiring loom and we went up in the morning and we we got a running by about eleven o'clock and then um, we we sort of done a calibration for it and we don't have the you know the the petrochemical lab in the back of my EPS van to make up some cancer-inspiring race fuel that give you the results you wanted to. But so we we just bought the best commercially available turbo fuel, which, you know, is VP import. Um, there's probably other brands that are whatever, but that's another story. And, yeah, we got into it, really. We sort of used VP import. I have to say that's the only time that I've actually had to swap the engine oil pressure sensor with the engine's map sensor so we could increase its range so we could then increase the turbo boost pressure because we we topped out a four bar map sensor pretty quickly and we just found that the more boost pressure that this thing would have the the more the numbers would come and they did okay let's talk about some of some of that uh before we get into numbers and boost pressure just talking about that that fuel and and I, I don't know exactly what was going into the fuel back in, in that turbo era back then, but I mean, I, I know that a few of the F1 teams kind of worked hand in hand with uh, with petrol companies to to manufacture a really special uh, blends of fuel to to sort of stave off knock and and allow the the sort of insane boost pressures they were were running. You know, obviously, you didn't have access to that fuel, but VP import, I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I think the, the octane somewhere uh, above 120. So I've, I've used That's it in the past. Yeah. It, it's a pretty special fuel. Um, was was knock an issue uh, with that fuel? We, we, were you sort of walking a tightrope? Did you have to be careful? Yeah, you, you, you still got to be careful, don't you? Because the, the biggest problem you get when you're using, like, you know, VP imports 120 plus octane, you know, they can't sort of give you accurate measurements above 120, can they? So they kind of like, yeah, it's got this amount of oxygen, this amount of octane. But what you'll find with a high-octane fuel with such anti-knock properties in it, you, you won't hear it knock. It will mm. it will, it will, pass, you know, MBT, you know, before you, you sort of hear knock. And really you don't want to be getting to <laughs> the sort of MBT and beyond with such a, a priceless engine that you know has got to go around and make a film <laughs> in the next the next couple of days you know like you wouldn't be very popular that's for sure so you know we we, we just sort of we have knock listening devices on it and you know i've still got the same knock listening device that i've i used from when i first started tuning and my ears are tuned into 
into that, aren't they? You know, you, you have your favourites, don't you? Definitely. And, um, you know, you sort of position it onto the engine where you can, you know, somewhere on the inlet side, you know, below the sort of, well, meant to be below the head, but this thing didn't have a head. You know, you kind of hear the engine come up to peak cylinder pressure and just sort of get all sort of raspy and noisy and, you know, you sort of, you know you're somewhere near the MBT and then you sort of back it up with reading the plug colours and stuff like that to, you know, make sure that you're still safe and you're going to get a Christmas card and, <laughs> you know, you're going to send the engine out and, uh yeah. It keeps running for the for the filming work Correct. that is required. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, so where where do you end up with in terms of boost pressure and power? Are you able to share those sort of numbers with us? Yeah, it wasn't as impressive as like, you know, the numbers that they sort of sprouted with, you know. Um, I think we ended up with like about sort of five and a half, six bar of boost and I think it was like sort of eight fifties. Okay. Eight fifties, nine hundred, you know, so that's still good in all. You know, still good in all standards, really. You wouldn't complain. No, because, you know, you you look at the turbo and it's like, my God, if this had like a latest, you know, Zona Rotor or, you know, so it'd be so much better, wouldn't it? You know, because, you know, the, the thing even had a butterfly in front of the turbo to uh, like shut to create anti-lag. So could you imagine shutting that butterfly on a turbo? Imagine the turbo speed going through the roof. It's you know like that's what they did back then to to create anti lag. I think yeah, it's the turbo technology. It really is 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 essentially exactly the same as what we've seen with the ECU technology. Maybe even more so, and and even in the twelve or odd years since since I ran my drag car, you know what I've seen with people on that same 4G63 platform making way more power on, on essentially what is physically a, a smaller turbo and I would almost guarantee with, with better response. I mean, what a time to be alive. The, the turbos we've got access to now, the airflow that they can support, but the the transient response, how they'll, they'll come up onto boost and the boost threshold that they can provide even on small engines, it, it, is, it is mind-blowing. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see something like that heart engine running on a on a modern turbo, but obviously there's there's a limit to to how how much you want to change on something of historic significance. Yeah, exactly. You, you don't want to you don't want to wreck something like that. <laughs> no. All right, let, let's move on, and we've sort of talked briefly uh, about dynos. You know, they've they've come up in conversations so far, and and I'm interested. You, you've used obviously a, a rolling road dyno, which you've got access to. I, I'm not sure if you've uh, had experience on on a hub dyno. Uh, then with that hard F1 engine, you, you're talking about an engine dyno. Engine dyno, yeah. yeah. Yep. So so we've got those three options. We've also got road tuning or or, or track tuning. Tell us about the pros and cons of each of those options and, and where they're suitable. They're all horses for courses, aren't they? You know, the, the engine dyno is a great tool for like the engine builder, you know, because he, he could then, it can bolt on, it can be checked for leaks, running correctly in a nice controlled environment. You know, the temperature and all the, um, of the air, the, the oil, the, you know, everything like that can be sort of controlled really. So, you know, that, that's a great tool. I think, I think the best tool still is the rolling road because you've got so much more that you can test and sign off in one go, you know, because nowadays a, a modern engine management system, 
doesn't just run the engine. You know, it controls the, the, the gearbox system. Um, it can, can control, you know, the, the fuel pumps, it control radiator fans, all these sort of functionality of the car. And when you've got access to a rolling road, you know, you can, you can sign off and, and test all of those functions. You know, for instance, I was doing some work with a touring car team a couple of years back. And we were, we were sort of on the money with power wise, you know, to them. You, you can come, you can see them come out of a corner and they'll be, if it was a flat out drag race in one gear, it'd be perfect. But at the end of the straight, we were like a car length back. And, um, we were, you know, we were so frustrated that, you know, like there's got to be something that we're missing here. And, and that's what the rolling road can then highlight. And, and that's what we've done was we, you know, I convinced the team, look, you know, give us two days of work on the rolling road and we can, we can sort of have a play and just work out why, where this deficit is coming from. And basically it was the gear cut strategy. And so we, we would do like power runs on the actual car and also produce two or three gear changes. And you could watch the uh, power of recovery after the gear change. And that was where we were losing all the lap time from. And basically what it was, there was something in the software. Um, this wasn't a MoTeC. This was a um, Cosworth Electronics ECU. All it was was it had an option to disable the variable valve timing in the event of a gear change ignition cut strategy for a certain amount of time. It seems questionable. I mean, I don't know why you would have that in there. And as soon as I found that, we got rid of that and that transformed the car. You wouldn't see that on an engine dyno. No, 100%. And, and that, that's why you've got to test, you know, you, you've got to, you know, like using a, a rolling road, checking for, you know, gear change cut strategies and a rolling road where you've got like a lot of inertia. You could do a lot of work on deacceleration. Mm. So you can get all your overrun fuel incorrect. And then if all that's roughly in the window, when you do all your throttle blipping for down changes and stuff like that, the engine will respond and then you'll have a, a good down change because it's all good if you have a paddle shift system. Then you go blip with the throttle, it opens up 40%. There's no fuel in there. What's the point? I ain't going to do anything, is it? Uh, so so many tuners I see kind of just completely ignore that that overrun area of the calibration because it it can be tricky to get to. There's, there's a few yeah. tricks I'll talk about in a second, but that that overrun where you you know out on the road you'd either be completely on overrun, maybe just touching the throttle and just holding constant speed. You know, if you're coming down a, a slight hill as well, it just puts you into an area of the mapping that that maybe you can't even get to on the dyno. But particularly as you mentioned there, with you know now sequential gearboxes with auto blip that the crispness of the blip, the ability of that blip to to work smoothly and, and quickly, which is the important part there, it really comes down to the overrun calibration being right. Obviously, there's some transient enrichment, excel enrichment has to be on point as well. But you know, if you haven't got that, what you end up trying to do, what tuners will end up trying to do is kind of put a big old bandage on it by by changing the excel enrichment where the, really the core problem is that the main fuel mapping in those cells that it, it's actually accessing during the blip 
or pre-blip uh, are just too lean or maybe massively too rich, the same kind of yeah. effect is going to come out. Now, I think the horses for course is exactly, I, I couldn't have put it better than that. That's the exact scenario. So you know, if you're on an engine dyno, obvious pro is there. You've got complete access to everything around the engine. So for development work, we're swapping parts, maybe cams, heads, exhausts, etc. It you know, makes perfect sense. You're not actually working in the chassis. One of the things I think that's really is easy to overlook with the uh, the engine dyno is in most instances, and I know it's it's not always going to be the case, but you know, often I see engines being tuned or calibrated with uh, sort of a dyno exhaust system. So it might be mm-hmm. the the headers as they'll be in the car, but then they're sort of lopped off at the, the end of that front pipe and then it's just run into a big extraction system. The subtle difference of having that full exhaust system as it will run in the car makes quite a difference often often to the to the calibration and and that's where when you're tuning on a, a rolling road or a chassis dyno in general you're tuning as the car is going to to run so the accuracy there can sort of often be be better the other element there is on the the engine dyno there is no inertia so you can't get down into those overrun areas and, and a little trick that that I used to use on my rolling road was you know, if you're sort of trying to do that very light load overrun area, and normally I'll be tuning in maybe fourth or fifth gear, a gear that's close to one to one, but if you drop down into second gear, the torque, the additional torque multiplication that you get in second gear uh, allows you to to get access to a, a lower load area than you could in fourth. Is that something that you're using as well? Yeah, 100%, because when you're on an engine dyno, you certainly cannot recreate the car's intercooler system, pipe work, all these have massive effects, don't they? We, we've had problems before where we've had like a, a intercooler system, you know, on an application for a turbo where there was such a massive pressure drop across it and we only found that out when we got in the car. And that's the joy of the rolling road. You know, you, you're running it like for like and I think, that's something you need to consider when you're doing a potentially big power project or a development project that you need to invest in like a little bit of money and a little bit of time to add some extra sensors and also like pick up points to maybe measure boost pressure or air temperature or something like that just to see what's going on really. We've done a, a land speed record car and um, this was for a, a Riley Kestrel this was and we used the power plant the same as my Audi Quattro um, hill climb car so I know that that power plant can make 900 horsepower and so we used this in this Riley Kestrel 1930s and all this sort of stuff and they had problems with the aerodynamics of the car and of course they take it to Myra the thing gets boxed up there's no holes anywhere <laughs> so there's, there's, there's nowhere for the air to go in and out of this engine bay. And of course, it just killed it when we went to do real life testing because, you know, this poor engine was all boxed up because of the aerodynamic guys want to have no side pods. They want to have no air intake ducts, you know, because that, that's <laughs> drag. That's all killer stuff, isn't it? You know, and time attack cars are exactly the same. You know, if you haven't got your aerodynamics or your cooling package, um, sorted, then you know, it is going to be different. Things are going to either run massively hot, they're not going to get the air they require, you know, you ain't going to get the results and it's just something that you just have to work on, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, providing an engine with uh, no air intake may be a, a fairly brutal oversight by the aerodynamicist, but I mean, I guess it, at least uh, at least it would have been aerodynamically clean. Uh, yeah. Interested to, to get your perspective on accuracy and repeatability with a rolling road, because that, that's where I do see from my own experience some potential deficit. You know, I, I've seen comparable differences in power uh, session to session because of a different tyre. Uh, yeah. And yeah, obviously tyre pressure has an impact, as does strapping techniques. So you know, how, how do you combat that? Uh one of the I, I do a lot of cars that do uh, BMW championship, and they're all balance and performance type um, projects. The tire is the most critical thing to the the outright sort of power and repeatability of the of the project, really, because we've had it before where you've got to aim for say 300 horsepower, as an example, and then you'd get 300 horsepower straight away. Then they'd go to the rolling road that the championship requires for them to go but because they put different tires on it's totally different you know so it's kind of it's a hard thing to to do isn't it and and rally cars are the same you know they turn up with a gravel rally tire on a rolling road it's just a nightmare isn't it you know you you're never going to get the the horsepower that they expect to achieve you know because at the end of the day it's measuring what it's measuring isn't it I mean, from my perspective, I, I've sort of I've said this before, but I, I think it's sort of with a, a rolling road. I mean, everyone obviously always wants to to kind of convert to some flywheel number so they can go and brag on the internet. I mean, for for me, that that's less critical because you go put your car on five different types of dyno and you're going to get five different results. That they they don't read the same. There's just differences. That it is what it is. What's more important for me is consistency so and what i mean by that is if, if i do five runs without making a change mm-hmm. i want those five runs to overlay directly on top of each other so that when i add a degree of timing and i see a difference i, I can be confident that that was as a result of the timing not just as a natural run to run variation so that's really the key uh, for me so Yes, it does become problematic when you've got a, a customer who's you know been consistently using you for tuning, and they they make some changes which maybe should make more power and bring the car in, but it's on a different tire, and all of a sudden it's actually measuring the same or, or five horsepower down. That that's problematic, but really that that consistency run to run, I believe, is is more critical. And if the dyno measured horsepower kilowatts or fluffy unicorns for me, I, I don't really give a shit one way or the other. It's just again the the, the same number of fluffy unicorns coming out the end that's what i want it is 100 and you know as, as you mentioned it's it's a tuning tool and if you if you know dino strengths and weaknesses you could then try to manage a situation because when you've when you've got something with um big power outputs by far a, a hub dino is the the best solution because you know you, you haven't got the slipping you haven't got the the strapping of the car as an issue yeah none of that is an issue my god you can start in like top gear you know you don't have to go for the gearbox at all so that's fine but when you have got a, a rolling road you just you kind of need to know what sort of tools that you've got and how to manage them so you know, whenever I use the rolling road in Northampton, you know, at VRS, I, you know, I always strap the cars a certain way. 
it's no bullshit. You know, like you, you've got correction factors in it, you know, because I'm not in there to make, you know, like horsepower glory numbers. I just want to make sure that the thing's calibrated correctly. And then, you know, when you're, when you're working away on a dyno like that, you know, because you're running it through the tire, the tire is a very, very critical thing. And, and so the, the, a rolling road is not the car's natural environment. So things can heat up too much. Things can sort of not be representative of what it's going to be like on the road. So, you know, you need to like give things breaks, you know, like do your mapping, complete it all, go and have a coffee, you know, like wait for the thing to cool right down, turn the tires, make sure they're not square by the time you start it back up again. Um, you know, they're all sort of things that you're going to do to, you know, then give the final printout results that should be representative to the, you know, machine that you're on really. That that point you've just made there is is really so important. It, it, it's difficult even in a really well designed dyno cell to to replicate the airflow and hence the temperatures that you're going to get out on the road. Mm-hmm. And, and for that reason, even on the best of dynos, I, I still wherever possible like to take the car out and and just confirm everything I've seen on the dyno out on the road or at the racetrack. You can do this with data logging, obviously. And it's pretty common that you'll see small discrepancies. Hopefully, you know everything's at least there or thereabouts. But you know, maybe you might have to make a few percent change to your fueling. Um, you know, I've had situations where the engine has also been, you know, absolutely quiet. No, not a hint of detonation on the dyno, and you, you take it out yeah. on the road. And particularly, clark, maybe clark, on, clark. on a gear change, <laughs> it, it, it'll it'll get a, a couple of little hits of of, of debt. So, yeah, the timing might need some tweaking. So, and that's something again, I don't see too many tuners really uh, doing that. Sort of often, it's like close enough, good enough, send it out the door, and and you know, hopefully, it doesn't come back with a, a rod hanging out the. Side of the block yeah and it also it also depends on what sort of application and what sort of you know transmission the car's got and other stuff because you you often get some we, we had a, a s2000 um, rally car that was a particular car that we had a problem with and these engines are normally aspirated massive compression and they've got a close ratio gearbox that is like a dustbin with gears in it. And so when you try to map that on the stage or on the road or rolling road, a lot of it, all you hear is transmission. And it's very hard to get right. And, and we had it in a particular application where we had Alistair McRae driving the car and no problems all year. And then we had another driver. Um, I think it was Mark Higgins, I think, driving it. And then one rally, one engine, rebuild it, one rally, one engine. And in the end, I said, look, we've got to like reset. Like, let's just, there's something wrong here that I, I can't picture it, but you know, and so I said, we've got to put it on an engine dyno and then find out what the hell's going on. And, and we found it straight away. And literally when the engine was running at like tick over at like 20% throttle, this thing was detonating its head off. Oh wow! Right. It was clacking so bad, and, and like part throttles, like quite a lot of load, isn't it? Sometimes part throttles, yeah. if you do like a lot of BMWs, they detonate a lot with part throttles at like low RPM, and that's what it was because Alistair McRae was like driving at such full a throttle. like a full throttle everywhere, even road sections and whatever. <laughs> we never had that problem, and of course Higgins was trying to be gentle, gentle, you know, road sections. The damage <laughs> was happening. 
And then as soon as you get on the stage, bang, that would be the sign-off of the piston. Yeah, wow. You know, and, and when we when we had it on the engine dyno with no transmission and no gearbox noises and stuff like that, we, we could hear the knock straight away. We didn't even have to have headphones on. My God, it was so loud. Yeah, it, it does get really difficult with a lot of race applications, you know, noisy dog engagement gearboxes. The other one is, you know, sort of open open wastegate dump pipes. You know, all of that just makes it just that much harder. I mean, solid lifters with with sort of, uh, you know, pretty pretty loose clearances, that makes a lot of mechanical noise as well, and you, you, you're listening to, to all of that as well. All right, look, David. I think I think we'll move towards wrapping this up. Where we've gone pretty long here, and I, I do want to respect your time, so we'll move on to our wrap up questions, and and that's the the three same questions we ask all of our guests. And the first of those is what what's next and in the future for you and EPS Motorsport? Yeah, we're just going to continue on doing what we're doing. Really, we're going to you know try to get into more manufacturing of our own parts you know to help complement the business you know so we're going to try to have more car specific kits available and stuff like that so that we can sort of get people with the right equipment to start with um because not everybody can wait for manufacturing of a loom and all this sort of stuff so I want to sort of get more involved in doing all that and also as well look I, I try to keep an eye on, you know, stock levels and try to buy lots of stock, you know, because all these historic cars and all these other cars, it's not long before sensor manufacturers and other manufacturers stop making things, do they? Mm. And, um, you know, some of these old cars need these old parts and, and same as electrics, you know. So I try to stockpile quite a lot of other stuff like that, really. So that's the main sort of direction we're going to be going in really keep doing the same stuff really have some more fun and i like to get back to pike's peak and you know have another go up the hill and maybe in something different and you know so watch your space so sounds good all right so in terms of your your career it's obviously been a a, a fairly long and and sort of creative path you've gone through obviously helped dramatically by your experience with motec both in australia and europe looking looking back at everything you've done is there any advice you'd give to uh, a a listener maybe a younger version of yourself to sort of fast track that career experience maybe avoid some pitfalls if they have been yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think don't be scared and just roll your sleeves up and get on with it. If you spend all your time looking on Facebook at all these big builds and mega money, this, that, you know, you, you, you kind of get a peer pressure of that you have to do all that and you have to have a thousand horsepower GDR and whatever. But it's like, you don't do some doing, you know, get yourself a little project car and, you know, like a, you know, something normally aspirated or whatever, get yourself a little aftermarket ECU and just build the car properly and just, just enjoy the trade. You know, like you don't, you don't have to be breaking world records at, you know, anything really. Just, just enjoy yourself. And, and I think as well, you've got to really concentrate on trying to have relationships with people and your suppliers and stuff like that because if you if you spend all your time just emailing people and whatever then you know you you, you won't get that you know step up in in life really you need to be sort of in people's faces and 
posting pictures of your projects and all that sort of stuff. And that's where you get people involved and, and when you get noticed by other people and you, you don't know who your next boss is going to be, do you? So, mm. you know, I think, I think take the personal relationships as part of the whole scene as well. Yeah, like like anything, it is a, a relationship uh, industry. So yeah, I, I think that's spot on what you've you've just mentioned there as well. You know, no one knows what you're doing if you're not talking about it or showing people. So so right. don't keep it to yeah. yourself. In terms of you know not needing to start with a, a thousand horsepower, absolutely. And one of the the cars that I built back in the day, which which I still actually really miss, was a little K70 Toyota Corolla. We'd put in a, a Toyota 4AGZE bottom end, 1.6 litre, silver top 20 valve 4AGE head, and uh, a hand-me-down HKS GT30 off my old drag car. And that thing was low budget, and it was an absolute barrel of laughs. And I learned yeah. so much. It had about three or four different ECUs over its iterations, and you know, I, I learned so much on that car at a relatively modest sort of budget level. And in the end, I think it, it, it still went pretty good. It, it did 1050 on the on the quarter. So it was, it was no slouch. But you know, that that sort of you know level, what you've mentioned there, starting with a naturally aspirated car as well, while there's absolutely no reason why you can't learn how to tune on on an 800 horsepower package what happens is that the tuning envelope becomes that much narrower and and you do have to be pretty sharp and, and quick uh, with your your changes a naturally aspirated engine I mean some of the lower power ones you you'd just about be hard pressed to break them so obviously for a novice uh, that that makes a, a lot of sense to get started there you're probably likely to uh, do less damage. All right, on to our last question here, Dave. If people want to follow you and see what you're up to, where are they best to do so? Just EPS Motorsport. We're on like all the platforms with the same name and, you know, websites there available as well. We're on Instagram and, you know, we've got a separate page for the um, Pikes Peak Project, Quattro and stuff like that. So that's the Audi Quattro Revival. We'll, we'll drop those links into the show notes to make it easy for people to find. All right, look, thanks, David. It's been a, a really great and in-depth chat. I'm sure there's some real uh, value that our listeners are going to get out of this, particularly those who are maybe considering diving into you know, following their passion into a career uh, as, as a tuner. So thank you for your time, and we wish you all the best. No problem. Cheers, Andre. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with David Rowe, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us grow our audience and that in turn helps us continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt free of charge anywhere in the world. Also, this is a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week, a big shout out, I'm hoping I'm saying this correctly, T.S. DeLosa, if I've got it wrong, I do apologise. Either way, he said, if you tune cars, you need to subscribe. Excellent podcast that's always packed full of the best people in the industry. If you're into tuning cars, this is packed full of enjoyable knowledge. Well, we tend to agree. Thanks for your kind words, though. It's great that you are enjoying the podcast. We've got some really good episodes coming up, so keep on listening. In the meantime, get in touch with your t-shirt size and shipping details, and we'll fire a fresh tea straight out to you.
All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.